I followed all the instructions you've given me. I've got my laptop charging as we speak. I've got my best tea towel. Welcome. Welcome to The Writer and the Critic. Welcome to The Writer and the Critic, a monthly podcast devoted mostly to books, reviews, or whatever else takes our fancy. Hip, hip, hooray. It's our 100th episode. We're so excited. Yay. <laughs> we are so excited. And the note you've written, 100th episode, yay, we're still tired. (laughs) (laughs) I was probably very tired when I wrote the note. Why are you tired, Kirsten? I don't know. I don't know. This Well, today, actually, today I'm probably tired because I have had a head cold in the last um, week or two, uh, which I'm kind of over now. But as you can probably hear, listeners, um, my voice is not. (laughs) <laughs> it's not entirely back to its own self. I'm still a bit sinusy, which apparently means I've started snoring quite a lot in bed because I can't breathe through my nose. Um, so I was woken up by sharp jabs to my back all of last hot? night. Really? <laughs> to stop wanna, me snoring, which means I borrow, didn't sleep very well. You want to borrow my CPAP machine? It doesn't. No, matter. I am going to go sleep in the cat's room tonight. Okay. Yeah, the cat's room. We have a spare room where our cat has taken up residence in the last couple of months. The guest room, including the last time we had a guest over just this week, and the cat, <laughs> the cat did not vacate the room, so the guest had a cat friend <laughs> overnight. <laughs> hey, he said the cat was fine. She just stayed on her pillow, didn't disrupt him, wasn't a concern. Lovely. You know, both of us, both of us are nearly a half a century. I am fifty next month. No. The month after, in end of October. Can you believe that? Um, sure. I feel like I've been alive for half a century right now. I feel like I feel that very much. I feel like I've been alive for half a century in the last two years. <laughs> That's what I feel. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Well, this has been a miserable start to our hundredth episode. Most people do cakes. Reminisce, nostalgia. Remember that first episode? I was gonna do it. cake, but then I remembered I don't really eat cake anymore. So, <laughs> and I figured maybe <laughs> having a, a bowl of oats is not quite celebratory. So, uh, I told Kirsten at the start before we recorded that I wanted to keep this to a tight hour because I just do. I want to be efficient with our time. I want to be really tight with what we have to say about these two books. Let's try to let's try to do that from one hundred on. We'll try to be an hour, which means yes. if we waffle, I will be severe in the edits. Yeah, good, excellent. Because I do say and so I might, much. I ed- might cut out whole discussions. Yeah, whole subplots, which actually is a good segue into our first book. <laughs> what are we talking about this month, Ian? So the two the two books we did uh, we chose were the Book of Accidents by Chuck Wendy and Conquest by Nina Allen. Uh, Conquest only just came out like three or four months ago. Book of Accidents is 2021, I want to say. I think so. It's Yeah, it's it's a little little older. Both novels, and we're going to talk about the Chuck Wendig book first. So, so Kirsten, can you please introduce the book? I shall, and I shall do that by reading, as has become our tradition, the blurb from Goodreads. So this is um, The Book of Accidents by Chuck Wendig. Long ago, Nathan lived in a house in the country with his abusive father and has never told his family what happened there. Long ago, Maddie was a little girl making dolls in her bedroom when she saw something she shouldn't have and is trying to remember that lost trauma by making haunting sculptures. 
Long ago, something sinister, something hungry, walked in the tunnels and the mountains and the coal mines of their hometown in rural Pennsylvania. Now Nate and Maddie Graves are married and they have moved back to their hometown with their son Oliver. And now what happened long ago is happening again and it is happening to Oliver. He meets a strange boy who becomes his best friend, a boy with secrets of his own and a taste for dark magic. This dark magic puts him at the heart of a battle of good versus evil and a fight for the soul of a family and perhaps for all of the world. But the Graves family has a secret weapon in this battle, their love for one another. Um, actually, it is actually a re- given how, uh, okay, I'm just going to say it, messy the book is in terms of plot. That's actually a really good blurb. Yeah, it is. And it, it, it lets you into the book. It doesn't give anything away, really. It, do- it doesn't even mention some very major uh, plot points and characters who work very hard for the book's mechanics. I don't, so I don't, I think know, why, I don't know why you're quibbling. I mean, we're going to spoil this thing anyway. So Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yes. I mean, the blurb is very good because overall the book is about cycles of violence and how yeah. you break those cycles of violence. And the way to break it, at least according to this book and Chuck Wendig, is you know a supporting a loving family. That's yeah. essentially what the book is about. Which is, I mean, that is partially true like there's a lot of extra work that needs to go into it but that is I, I, i'm break. not being dismissive i really sound dismissive <laughs> don't know i'm not being dismissive. a little dismissive and, and wendig says in an interview because i read one he said he didn't you know yes the book is dark but he didn't want it to be bleak because there's enough misery in the world and, and i have to say yeah he's right and i he's think right. a, a novel that um says something positive about the family unit and something loving about the f- family unit is good is great yeah, uh, top I think I think it falls into that. I'm thinking about this a lot in the last few years, and I apologise, listeners, if their random cat bell is heard in the background of this podcast. I have a, a very insistent cat this morning who would like to play, and who's not getting to play. Um, it's something I've been thinking about quite a bit over the last few years. Is this idea about how easy it is for us, us as readers, us as Um, I hate the word, consumers of culture, participants in culture, how easy it is for us to believe something negative. That's easy. We don't have no problem suspending disbelief when bad things are happening. It's like, of course, of course, that's how the world works. And how difficult it is and what a challenge it is for artists to present something in a positive light that feels true. Authentic, that doesn't feel twee or Pollyanna and all of that sort of stuff. And it's really, really difficult. We're much more willing to believe that bad things happen without question and that people are arseholes without question than we do the opposite. So, yeah, I'm quite in love with projects like what Chuck Wendig is doing here where he's unapologetically making the case for, well, you know what, actually – you know, despite the bad things that do happen, we're not saying the world is a wonderful place and there are no problems. Despite that, people, and you know what? Most people are actually pretty good to each other and will try to help each other and 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 love each other. And that is in itself an important thing. I can't help but slightly balk at what this book does on that subject. It just feels a bit a little bit too simplistic. But uh I, I don't know. I just look well because the, the central premise, 
and this is huge spoilers here because we're getting to the real heart of the novel. Yeah. But the central premise is that there are multiple universes, a hundred of them, mm. or ninety-nine universes, and Oliver uh, is essentially Oliver uh, go, suffers abuse in all ninety-eight bar one. Yeah, the he's one like that a, he's a key character. Yes. And so, Nate, who is his father, is the correct. Is the and so, the, and, and, of them. correct. And so, the cycle of abuse continues on from universe to universe to universe, bar one, which is the one that we're reading. And uh, it's not, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. For, for, I can't actually articulate why that seems. What is it? I suppose yes. Under any sort of multiple universe theory, there's got to be one good universe out of the yeah. lot. I mean, it's a very pessimistic outlook. The idea that out of all of these multiple universes there's only one that's where possibly where i was broken. coming from that it was more that well wouldn't there be more that a bit nicer you'd, you'd hope wouldn't you there'd be gradations there'd be gradations <laughs> but it's all just fucking horrible well and maybe there is we and we don't know the gradations and we like we're not well oliver's alter ego who comes makes it pretty clear i mean he could be lying he does he is he's not a reliable character <laughs> whose testimony we can trust without question. True. He definitely has ulterior motives to try to kill Oliver or to get Oliver to kill himself. Um, so I'm I'm not necessarily necessarily going to believe a hundred percent of what Jake is telling us. And he, Jake and um the the serial killer are really our only neither of whom are characters you're going to believe without several grains of salt. Also, and I think it's I think it's told, and again, there is a lot in this novel, so I will have forgotten mm. bits, but I think there's a reference that all the Olivers, well, some of them at least have some sort of power, but this particular yeah. Oliver's power uh, is one that actually is the most dangerous uh, because uh, it, it, it deals with people's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an empathy power. which And is, it's really strong. Yes, yeah, he's, he's a, 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 I guess, a super empath, if we yes. want to put so, it that way. So if we take a step back, okay, what I really did like about this novel, actually I loved about this novel, mm. is that it has all the scaffolding of a haunted house story or armature. That's a lovely word, armature. <laughs> the armature. All the armature of a, of a haunted house story and yet is goes in a completely left, unexpected yeah, direction. Yeah, it's not a haunted house story not at, at all. all. Not at all. Uh, and I love an author who plays into that and then says, yeah, yeah but it's not that. And then, and, and, then and he says, oh, but it. it's not that several times yes. throughout this novel. There are several unexpected, uh, almost hairpin turns really, where you, you are expecting it to proceed a certain way, at least for a little while, and then suddenly, oh, no, I mean, Nate's death early on was, was very surprising, um, and he kind of did a did a, a, a psycho on that um, on that front. Um, in that you you had point of view of Maddie and Oliver as well, but but Nate I think died fairly fairly early on. He was a but he was your sort of focal character for while he was there before he died. Well, does um, he and, die? And he, well. He gets shoved into another universe. No, okay, yeah, he doesn't die, but you think he's died, right, as, as yeah, the okay. reader right. in that moment and for a little bit later you think he's died. Dead. Yeah. And that's that was quite, it's like, oh, okay, where, where do I shift my focus now as the reader? Where, where's my focal character who I need to latch on to? Which then makes it much, much easier to latch on to um, Maddie and and Oliver, who who then become their point points of view become much more present. They're always there, but they be they become. Uh, I think 
Maddie and Oliver's point of view kind of dominates the the last half of the novel. Yeah, Maddie's you- definitely there, definitely doing stuff, but um, and, and important things. But uh, yeah, it's kind yeah, of and that's what's really that is what that is actually what is very clever that mm. as you just said, it is very much a book about well at least initially about Nate dealing with his abuse mm. at the hand of his father, but then he we think he dies so wait that didn't get resolved wait what yeah. now then we find out he's in another universe and in that universe <laughs> he meets a version of his father who's not a I was going to say the c word but who's not an <laughs> asshole. Yeah, so, not as much of an yeah, asshole. It's still not, 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 well, not he, the greatest well, he of people. Was, he was still abusive to his Nate, but now he's, because he has lived longer than Nate's, our Nate's father did in, in our current story or in our universe, um, he has had time maybe to, to to show genuine remorse and reflection on what what he did to his son. That's right, um, and, 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 and even there, and even there, there's a, there, there, it isn't fully resolved because no, this is not, not his resolved. father. But it's interesting. But see, that I really, and, and I really book, love that. The book acknowledges that the book is is not saying, "Oh, look, this Nate and this," and I'm, I apologize, I forget the father's name, but this Nate and this father, have, you know, everything's resolved now because these people have managed to reconcile. Um, it's not, and, and Nate kind of reflects on this a few times, thinking like, like this guy is not as bad and he, he feels genuine affection for this guy and, but that's always overlaid with the fact that but this guy's not my father this guy's not the man who abused me this guy's not the man who did this and that and this other thing um so no Nate, Nate's relationship with his actual father in his own universe isn't isn't resolved be- because it can't be the you know the man's dead now and the man was never remorseful or apologetic in any way so Nate say Nate will never be able to resolve that relationship all he can do is is live with with what happened and, and find a way to accept what happened. And these are the really strong bits of the book. The problem mm. with the book is um, that it, you don't get any chance to breathe. You, really. you don't. And, I mean, that might be and, and, and part, and part of us the, as readers, but I'd imagine for some readers okay. that's and this catnip. Is it, this is it. <laughs> Correct. So we have to caveat this whole yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. And say... In horrible fashion, it's uh, us, not him. Um, <laughs> I, I I know because- um, when I was when I was younger, um, and I, I think a slightly a different kind of a reader and definitely a different person. I think I would have just adored this book almost unreservedly. Well, it's very Stephen King. Yeah, and I know. It I is, know it's. It I know. I, I know it's easy just to compare any horror writers to Stephen King. I mean, because but no, in terms of this the is very yeah. the multiple characters, the, the 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 outrageous weirdness of the plot sometimes, the um, tangents, the tangents, all of that. No, it it does feel quite reminiscent of um, earlier, like for, first half of Stephen King career. Um, it, it has a sort of drug fueled Gonzoners of a Tommy Knockers. When you yeah, think, yeah, you know, it, it, does. it actually it does. kept reminding me of the Tommy Knockers, and I love the Tommy Knockers. I'm probably the only oh my God, fan no. who loves the Tommy Knockers. I, I didn't like, like the Tommy Knockers when I read the Tommy Knockers. No, 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 most people don't. I, <laughs> I was did. one of my that was one of the first Stephen King books I remember going, hang on a second, while I was reading it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but that's the thing because like you, I have changed. I think if I read the Tommy Knockers now, and that's why I haven't reread it or gone anywhere yeah. near it. I'd have probably major issues with it. Mm. But at the time, I love the fact that it just went bizarre places and had whole chapters on one character who, who ends up, you know, just all the, the things that, that King just yeah. did when he was, you know, coked up on goofballs. 
And it goes back to your original point that when the younger us would have gobbled this up. Which is nothing to do with with age either, by the way. I'm not not trying to say this is a juvenile book at all. It's just I have I have changed in my taste as as a reader, and and there's books that I would have that I know because unfortunately I may have have reread a couple. It's like, oh, why did I like this so much? But here's the thing. But here's the thing. Let's be clear. I want to be clear on one thing. Mm. I think if you remove the serial killer from this book, just excise that completely, this probably works for me as a novel, and I. Probably enjoyed a hell. That's of- really interesting. I hadn't even because I because oh. my reading experience of the book of accidents was I at some point fairly early on, maybe shortly after Nate died, I just had to let go as a reader. It's just like I'm not going to even try to contain this book in my head and try to work out. I'm just going to let this book happen. And I will kind of reflect as I go and put the pieces together. And that in itself was quite an in an enjoyable sort of experience. Um, just it's like I'm just I'm letting go because I, I I don't I don't really know what this book is. I'm not going to try to you know think about it too much in my head as I read it. I'm just going to let it happen to me. Um, and I think if you did remove the serial killer aspect, who who is this character? Who the prologue begins with him um, getting executed and well, essentially. Surviving the electric chair through supernatural means. Disappearing, nerves. just disappearing okay, in, in, right. in much the way that later on Nate, Nate disappears, right? Yes. Um, and he's another character who is um, like Jake, who is a, is in an Oliver, so the Jake character is an Oliver. Um, he's a, the, the serial killer is able to kind of traverse between universes um, and continue his Serial killing, which killing is very which is ritualistic. Of young, young girls. And, and like like Jake, this this character's doing a very similar thing in, in the sense of, well, Jake isn't killing people except for Oliver's, um, but they're both trying to end the multiverse and just end yes. it because they both believe it, it's a bad thing and it's just full of suffering and we should just end it and clean slate. So Jake is doing this by travelling through the multiverses and, and making the Olivers sacrifice themselves in a particular way. Um, and the serial killer, um, Edmund Reese, I think, I can't remember, Edmund something Reese. Um, the serial killer is doing that by a very uh, ritualistic um, way of killing people in, in, in a certain oh, number. Young girls. Long, young, young girls. girls. Um, well, it, yeah, and a certain numbering sequence, and he believes if he yeah. can kill a certain number in a certain you know way, it's not that will if end. he can kill one in young girls, that's, yeah, that will that's end his... the the multiverse. So, so Jake and the serial killer both have the same goal; they're just pursuing it in different ways, and and they're also pursuing the goal for the same reasons. So, it's quite an interesting sort of mirror. But you're right; I don't need, I don't think it needed both those the, characters. No, it didn't. Partly because the serial killer. I'm just going to call him that. Um, he pops yeah. in and out of the story. There's long chunks he vanishes. Yeah. And and because he's in the prologue, you you put importance on him because you yeah, see him. Well, you do. The book opens with him. Yeah. This this is important, but he's but he really his entire purpose, at least as far as I saw, beyond what you've just described, mm. is to be an enemy that uh, Nate faces off in the other universe. That's that to yeah. be essentially Nate's villain. Um, and, yeah. and that's. That's his. That seems to be his main key role. Beyond that, if you took him out, um, you, in fact, you could easily take him out, and Nate would still have issues in the. Because the thing about the other multiverse worlds is they're dying. I mean, they're falling apart ecologically, etc. 
And, um, and in terms of their reality, yeah, and everything their, just their structure. So, so he to me, he just added, you know, to a, a cake that already had too many eggs or whatever in it. You know, sugar. <laughs> that <laughs> is a okay. We're going to leave that metaphor on the side of the road where it belongs. Yeah, okay. But okay. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. Um, because on, because on top of that, there's a demon as well. There is a we demon as well. We haven't yes. even mentioned the demon. And actually, no, fact, the real true. villain of the story is, is the, demon, the demon. Who is orchestrating both what the serial killer and what Jake are doing and assisting them both in their endeavours. And, and one of the problems you have in a book like this is you have Jake being the villain, but then Jake has to take, and the serial killer, but then they both have to take a side a, a, a seat to the side when the demon gets revealed, well, we already knew we know the demons are about halfway through, but when yeah. they get more, they become a stronger force, and then they become the focus of our of the villainy, and mm. it, it, it sort of undermines what you've done and all the work you've put in to Jake specifically. Yeah, and I, look, I didn't, I didn't mind so much. Like, if it had just been the demon and Jake, I think that would have been quite resonant because J- Jake is an Oliver. Right, and Jake is unlike our Oliver. Jake has been terribly abused, and this yeah. is what has led to um, both, you know, his current, uh, I, I guess, who he is as a person at the moment, his vulnerability to this demon who has, um, you know, engaged him in this project of ending the multiverse, um, and also his, you know, his his motivation to do so, and you understand that, and the idea that you know, and the Oliver we know could become a Jake. Um, is is so like it's understandable, and you don't necessarily want Jake to be the uber villain because he's Oliver. He's Oliver who's had a so, really awful upbringing. Yeah, I, whereas I, I the never, serial killer I, is like, I, I don't want him ameliorated. <laughs> and no, he's no, got no, the no, demon no, who will no, ameliorate never, Jake. You're a much nicer person because <laughs> I was never, I was never invested in in Jake, and I never felt I felt he was he was uh, not redemptive at, from. Really, and once we know who he is and what he is and what he's doing, I just, I, yeah. I don't think he redeems himself as a character, but I think on a meta level, as a reader, you you can you can you know it's you know they're you know that that's who Oliver could have been. Our Oliver, our wonderful, sensitive, caring, yeah. empathetic Oliver, two steps away. I, and, and I get and I get that that plays into the cycle of violence. Yeah, stuff absolutely. And so having the demon above Jake, I think, is kind of cool. You know, it's not it's not quite the devil made me do it. It's just it's this extra factor, right? If Oliver had been in an abusive home, if Oliver had had a demon come to him, Oliver could have been Jake. And what might he have done with his powers? You yeah. Know? So I like uh, that. But but that same um, I guess pathway to considering you know to, to being empathetic about Jake and where he came from and why he is who he is now and understanding why you know his very real visceral personal motivation for for doing what he's doing. Not that it's a good thing. Not that you go well. I kind of yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, that also, you know, you're, the same process then gets overlaid on the serial killer, which I am so resistant to. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I oh, look and look and apart apart from all that, Maddie has can make th- sculpt things into life. Yeah. That's the mother. Oliver is a can suck people's pain out of them. So just, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, I'm not even going to explore either of those things, even though they actually are important to the plot, because yeah. they're just another layer on top of a layer on top yeah. of a layer. And look, I'll be and like you. Uh, at a point, I said I'm just going to go with this because clearly that's Wendy is just he's having fun. And actually, that's the key here. I didn't hate this book. 
Am I no, saying, God, no. Not this at all. This was a great deal of fun. I enjoyed it. Was. it. Yeah. I just think as a novel, <laughs> hold up as a novel, but I can't say at the time. It, it's, it like, was, it's, it's like one of those popcorn films you watch that when you walk out of the cinema you go, wait a moment. Yeah, and if, if one of the res- – I mean, I, I will say it, this is a very long book. Um, I don't know how big it is in page count, but it is – It's a, over 500. It is – I'm not surprised. And I did feel as a reader – I, I did feel I, I was I was quite wearied going through the last part of it. It was so I, I think honestly it could have benefited from some compression and maybe that could have been excising. No, but if, if you're so actively, yeah, it's five hundred and thirty pages. And and Kirsten and Kurt and Kirsten, this is us showing our age because when we were younger, we were gobbling down. Oh yeah, at the Stephen King doorstoppers. Yeah, and yeah. this is what this is. This, I, I'm certain this is paying homage to that. I don't know if we have said that in any interview, but I, I feel that that's what he was trying to aim for here, that sort of doorstopper, big big stand-type novel that just goes all sorts of places and, you know, you just yeah. go along with it for the ride. But you're right, is, is it too long? Yeah, it is, obviously. It, it, yeah, it's too long. But And, and, and for me, the... I guess when I when I think about, and it is it is memory, so that's fallible, obviously, but when I think about when I used to read these big, and the last one, I guess, of these types of books I would have read would, would have been The Dome, Stephen King's The Dome, in yeah. terms of, like, the types of Stephen King books. <laughs> the worst ending. Worst ending. So still so angry, so angry about the ending of the book, so incredibly <laughs> enraged and furious <laughs> about how that book ended. The ending of this is much better than The Dome. Oh, the ending of this is really good. Not going to spoil the exact ending, but it's No, he nails the ending. He's a really good ending. But The Dome... Which was a massive book that felt like, I don't know, like a thousand pages. It probably wasn't, but it was a huge book. I did read that as a physical book and it was huge. Um, and the reading experience, as with most of Stephen King's books, you're so absorbed and it, it, you're reading a Stephen King book, but the author, the author has stepped aside. There's a voice, but the author has stepped out of the book to a great extent. I felt with the book of accidents, and I think this might be a Wendig thing from other like bits and pieces I've sort of dipped into, Chuck's there on the page. Chuck's making quips and making asides and making, you know, I've read his blog way, way too regularly. I feel his voice, like Chuck Wendig's voice, not the voice of the book. I feel Chuck Wendig on the page almost all the time. And it's kind of like, dude, just let me, let me read your story. Dude, stop. <laughs> like, again, for some readers, it's like, this is catnip. For me, it was like, I just leave me to the story. You don't need to jump in all the time and say, hey, Here's this funny quip. Here's this aside. Here's this thing, and because it did reflect to me so much of his his blog that I've been reading for years, and not so much recently because I've gotten busy and I have not been reading a lot of blogs anymore. But I, I read that regularly. Terrible Minds. It was one of the things I, I did read on a weekly basis. So that voice on his blog is very familiar to me, and it mapped <laughs> very well to the Book of Accidents. And for me, that was distracting. Can I can I just can, can we end on one more thing? Can I just yeah. I, I, because I don't have anything to comment on that comment. I'm, I, I haven't read his blog, so I mean, but so I can't say one way or the other. But it's called the Book of Accidents. Yeah. <laughs> the book itself, it, it, there is a book of accidents in. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it plays near bugger all. <laughs> I mean, it's technically the home of the devil, the demon that's in this story, but. Oh, no, it was, I don't know if that's a red herring or it's, it's kind of what it's the, one of the keys but I think the title doesn't refer to that artifact 
the thesis of this whole book is like the, the world that we're in, the world that, you know, in, in a sense, this is like a series of little things that could have tipped a different way entirely. It could have entirely tipped a different way. It's just kind of accidental that this universe exists the way it exists. I on you are that's why that's why I love doing podcasts with you, Kirsten. Because I honestly <laughs> like, did not I took the literal. I didn't. I didn't see it that way. I, I didn't think that. Yeah, that that you know that the the, the accident is the accident yeah. of Oliver being what Oliver is versus yeah. the other Olivers. Because one thing I and I appreciated about this book so much. And there's so well, no, no, that's X. That's brilliant. I'm yeah. sorry. I I'm glad I brought it up. <laughs> I am too. Because one of the things I did appreciate about this book and the and and Chuck Wendig's imaginative creation of this particular multiverse and and where we are and what's happening is I don't think I could be wrong but I don't think any character ever even suggests it and the book to me didn't suggest it there's no sense of fate you know this is just how this world is and it could have been another way if this hadn't happened if something else hadn't happened if this thing hadn't happened like it's just this is this is how it is because this is how the world is and I thought that was really good and one of the other things I want to point out that I just loved about this and it's quite a magnificent achievement I do wonder how many like I picture Chuck Wendig's office when he was writing this book as like having a wall of one of those you know cliched crime movie walls where you have just bits of paper and string going everywhere because he manages to to create these really great effects within the book where something weird happens and it's like oh that's weird or that's creepy or that's you know um and then he loops it back. So some of the things you think are ghosts, they're not ghosts when he loops back to them and pulls them back into the story. And some of the like the weirder things, they all kind of come in and reconnect and get explained. You know, I don't mean like like terribly, oh, by the way, this was what that was. But just, you know, they are part of this cohesive world that he's created and these weird things that, that seem to happen out of left field no, actually, there's a really good reason why that happened and it's probably not what you thought. And he, he did that over and over and over in the last part of the book and it was so clever and I enjoyed that so much. So overall you can hear that, the, look, if if this is your sort of thing, you're going to love yeah, it. Yeah, it is, it is a really good book. Unfortunately, it's, it's possibly not a book for Kirsten as a reader right now, but it, it, is, a, it is a good book. And I'm glad, I'm glad you chose it because it's my first – Chuck Wending, and I probably would have a look at some other Chuck Wendings just to see what else he does. I've heard very good things about Wanderers, so I think it's called Wanderers. Yeah, yeah, me too. Like I would absolutely recommend this to people who are – it will be catnip to readers who are into that kind of dense, complicated horror. And, he, you know, he is drawing in all of these horror traditions. Like there is the haunted house thing, which isn't really. There's there's Lovecraft in there. There's, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. And he, he manages you know, on balance to create this world which – doesn't just feel like a grab bag world like all of these things are there for a reason they're there for a purpose the fact that we both finished it and it's extremely readable etc shows the talent because i wouldn't have been able to i mean it's it's the juggling act here i I think he drops some of the balls but i think for the most part he juggles pretty well anyway that's that's my that's is that a better metaphor than my cake one i just i think it is i think it is because i I would say he either picks them back up again or he kicks them under the couch and you forget about them (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, let's move. Let's move on to the next book, which I chose. Yes. Which is Conquest by Nina Allen. Now, and we we um, 
looked at a Nina Allen novella like a few years ago, didn't we? Oh, it was one of our, uh, the Silver Wind or whatever. I think. Yeah, Nina I know. Nina. I know. I read one, and I think it was a podcast. Yeah, so I, I have hundred episodes in. We can't remember what we talked. No, about. no, you can't remember. I know. I knew okay. exactly what we had done. The Silver Wind, and I do remember it because. Because not only was it my uh, my first exposure to Nina's work, it's the one that set me on that journey, uh, which I've <laughs> followed ever since. So I don't know about you, Kirsten. You may not have read another Nina Allen since. I am Nina. ashamed to say I have not. Um, well, you you chose Conquest, and I went, oh, cool. I remember reading. Uh, I couldn't remember the name of it, in all honesty, but I remember reading that novella and I really, really liked it. Why haven't I read any more of her books in well, the Well, this, this is on you. This is on you <laughs> it because... On no, it's not on me. It is on the literally millions of goddamn books that are published yes. each year and my vanishing window of time that I have to read them in. <laughs> That's what it's on. Stop publishing books, people. Let me catch up. Stop publishing books. Yeah, uh, and I've just discovered a, an author recently, Melissa Broder, who I now realise... I mean, I really should read all her other books. This but, is the thing, know, isn't it? You find a new author and it's partially like, yay, a new author I love, and partially like, oh, God, no, no, <laughs> a no, new no. author. <laughs> it's, it's, but with Nina Ellenoff stuck, I have stuck through. So I'll read the blurb. Uh, Rachel's boyfriend, Frank, is different from other people. His strangeness is part of what she loves about him. His innocence, his intelligence, his passionate immersion in the music of Johannes Bach. As a coder, Frank sees patterns in everything. But as his theories slide further towards the irrational, Rachel becomes increasingly concerned for his well-being. There are people Frank knows online, people who share his view of the world and who insist he has a unique role to play. In spite of Rachel's fears for his safety, Frank is determined to meet them face to face. When Frank disappears, Rachel is forced to seek help in the form of Robin, a private detective who left the police force for reasons she will not reveal. Like Frank, Robin is obsessed with the music of Bach. Like Frank, she has explained uh, she has unexplained connections with criminal with the criminal underworld of Southeast London. An obscure science fiction story from the 1950s appears to offer clues to Frank's secret agenda, but not to where he is. As Robin and Rachel draw closer in their search for the truth, they are forced to ask themselves if Frank's obsession with an alien war against all logic might have a basis in fact. Now, I mean that's, that's fair. It's a fair blur. To be honest, it doesn't sound that interesting. The book is so much more interesting. That's well, actually, it will sound interesting to a certain person who enjoys a good mystery detective type novel. Mm. But it will then disappoint that person. Although it does resolve, <laughs> it does actually resolve the mystery elements, sort of, in at least in terms of where, where Frank is. And it tells us where, where Frank we know, is. We, we find out where Frank is. We, we find, find out, out what where happened Frank to Frank. We do. <laughs> but. Talk, that is the surface. That is like <laughs> the least mystery by the time you find out what happened to Frank. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, fine. But what about all this other stuff? So so what you got to need, what you need to know about Nina Allen is that uh, she's been spending the last few years writing these novels because her previous novel, The Good Neighbours, does the same thing but with uh, fantasy or with um, with fairies, I should point out, okay. the fae. Uh, I think, and I think you'd love it. But does the same thing in as much as it is playing into a genre without necessarily being of the genre. Are you saying that conquest is not science fiction? This is the thing, because his good neighbours uh, fantasy, because it does, because the, the main character in that who is dead when we, uh, well, the main character is, is is uncovering the secrets of a friend of hers and the, their father, and his belief in the fate. That's the good neighbours. That's what the good neighbours is a reference to. 
And so there's this whole ambiguity of this, whether that was a real thing or just his hallucinations and da 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 da. Well, there's a lot of similarity of that to this, whereby Frank and the group that Frank is part of have a belief in an alien invasion. And Robin, uh, whether Robin buys into that whole thing. And again, you're left sort of in one direction, but maybe not. And that's and you do, that's the same good neighbours. And I'm not saying this is repetitive. It's no. what, what Nina Allen is doing. She's taking certain genre tropes uh, that we've all become accustomed to and playing with them in this way. I, I could be wrong, but I think we had a similar discussion when we talked about The Limits of Enchantment by Graham Joyce and whether that was a genre book or not. Um, the Limits of Enchantment was about, you know, magic or not magic and, and we were – we had that discussion about is is this a genre book or not? And the book itself didn't resolve whether it it was. Yeah, and and Nina Allen has a limits of enchantment as well. It's different to these called the Rift, which which does a very similar thing to to the to the Joyce, and that it's about a person who um, uh, disappears for several years and uh, comes back and says that she's been in a fantasy world. Right. I think that's I think that's the Rift. I'm pretty sure that's the Rift. Uh, so, so that's similar to limits of enchantment, yeah. And 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 so again, what I'm saying is that is that is Alan has been doing this for some time, playing in this space, but doing it in a different way each time. I really loved Conquest. Like I, loved yeah. So, well, did it remind you of Lot as well? Oh, um, well, I mean, obviously no, because that's the connection is just. <laughs> But I can I can see where you go with that. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I I can in that sort of meta. Well, well, how the book is how there is an overall plot to the book, but there are all these tangents that are connected to the plot, uh, but are also their own thing. That's what that that's uh, now. Lot takes that to the nth degree. Yes. Uh, this book doesn't as much, but it still has an. Ep- <laughs> we, we've got to mention it. It has an essay, a film criticism essay on about a um, real film. About a real film, uh, which I've seen. Have you seen it? Upstream Color. I feel like or- I have, but then when I was reading the critical review of it, it's like, have I seen the film? <laughs> I don't. I honestly don't know. I don't know. I need to watch it to see if it's familiar or not. I may have just heard about the film because I know it was like when it came out, it was a big indie film and everyone was talking about it. And it's really, really good. So, yeah, so it does a whole, there's a whole thing on upstream colour in, in the book, mm. which again is connected to the whole alien invasion yep. element. Uh, because upstream colour, if you've seen it, is about a bacterial uh, or, or, or a substance, a purple substance from mm. outer space. That makes you hallucinate, and that's sort of connected to, again to the beliefs of the of the conspiracy group at the center of this novel. Okay, and then also there's a whole bloody essay on the work of Hans Werner Hens, who I've never heard of, and no. I did do research. And of course, there's I, the I was one searching Bach. names to find out which yes. ones were real and which ones weren't. No, no, they're all real. No one who's a character in the book is real, but no, the references okay. are real. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So um, there's there's the Goldberg variations, and there's a lot of discussion on that. And yeah. I had heard. I mean, we've all probably heard the Goldberg variations in some some Bach's Goldberg variations, some form. But I went and listened to it all because I just got fascinated in this deconstruction of them. And and, and then to just top it all off, in the middle of the book, so it's so one reviewer said it was an extract. Gary Wolf, I think, correctly points out that it's the, actually the whole novella of the Tower, which is, is it though because that's what I wasn't sure about because it felt like they were all talking about it as. A, a novel and it also if, if it was meant to be like a complete work that would be jarring to me because I don't feel 
for the time it was going to be published in, I don't feel that might have been. So, oh my god, oh my god, I could. It this, felt like this, an extra. Yeah, it, it possibly is because they also. Sorry, just just okay. because they also there was sort of uh, like a synopsis of the book given at one point, and what we see of the book is doesn't cover that whole ground. Yeah. So so I, no, I want to. Yeah. Okay. So Lavitida, I agree with you. Lavitida, the latest novel which I think is out this month or next month, uh, The Circumference of the World, mm-hmm. uh, is about golden age science fiction, essentially. And it does the same thing in that it, there's an extract of a, not of a book that is central to the plot, okay? Now, Larvey, because of Larvey, does a genuine homage of uh, the right. gold, of, gold, of Western golden age science fiction, or North American golden age science fiction, as in he writes in that style. Nina Allen seems to have deliberately decided not to. Now there's a bit of ballad in there, but she's but there are there are phrases. I mean, this book's meant to have been published in 1958. No way does this book get published in the and way. That, I was wondering whether this was meant to be a book which had actually been published in the 50s, or is this a fake book that the characters in the story don't realise is a fake book that someone has, you know, manufactured to appear like it was published. In the fifties, and the characters are caught up in thinking it's real. That's the genie. There we go. Yes, <laughs> and it's not resolved. And, and I, and- and, but none of like that wasn't even remotely hinted at. And for me, I felt like. But the crumbs are in the book itself. The crumbs are there. Yeah, but but the idea of whether the book, like, did Alan misstep in creating this extract of a novel which was meant to be and we are meant to believe this was actually something published in the 1950s that the characters have built their conspiracy theory around and and then she misstepped with with that because it doesn't feel exactly like something parts of it do parts of it absolutely do but some of the language so it like doesn't feel like it was and is that a misstep or is this book a fake and i i just everything else in this novel is so precise and meticulous i know but i think this is the genius of it I, look i'm going with that i'm going with that i'm going that that's the genius because um the whole book is about misinformation and mm. conspiracy theories and that idea of what's real and what's not the deep fake sort of fear that this view of that uh, that we're in a post-truth world yeah the truth itself yeah. is now fungible it has no meaning and the fact that she has this book at, at the center of the, her novel that you walk out of it thinking wait a moment was that that couldn't have been a book from 1950, but what, but everyone seems to treat it that way and the narrative treats it that way. That, that's it. I kind of feel like there is nothing in the novel in any way that supports the idea this extract is not intended to be an extract from an actual book published in the 1950s in this, in this world. I think there are um, references. Uh, except the fact that it doesn't quite feel right. And I don't. for me that's not enough. No, I think there are, there are references to things that uh, – that possibly didn't exist in the mid nineteen fifties as well, but only um, within the book itself, right? Like yeah, yeah. Out, only within outside, the, well, outside of yeah. the extract, the rest of the novel, I, there is not. I might need to re 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 reread it again, especially before you get to that extract, just to see exactly what people have said about it and in their mentions and everything. But I I believe there is no indication outside of the extract itself that we are meant to suspect this is not. But that's fair enough. But you and I had the same reaction to that book, though. Yeah, but that. could that just be because it's that's a misstep? Look, I'm going to look. I'm going to be more. I'm going to be charitable. I don't think I am being charitable. I think that's the intent. But but I'm happy for Dina Rowland to say no, no, no. It is a book from 1958, 
And if everyone's reading it as if it was written as, as a fake, then I've made a mistake. Uh, but uh, for me, I love the idea that it may in fact be a fake itself because that does fit to me thematically what the book is about, the, the fact that truth is fungible. Yeah. Uh, but but look, I accept where you're coming from. Um, but I think that's what makes it so interesting. As I a novel. feel I feel like for me, I feel like that would actually like it'd be a, an extra layer of wink wink to the reader. But I feel that would actually diminish the themes of the book. Fair enough. Um, I, I feel like the, the themes of the book are around consensus reality or the failure of consensus reality. You know, the the tendency of humans to see patterns where there aren't patterns um to 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 misread and and have confirmation bias and all this sort of stuff and this thing these things tend to base themselves around real artifacts their misreadings perhaps their connections made that shouldn't be but the idea that the the artifact around that this conspiracy theory is hovered around and built itself around is in itself something that wasn't real would actually diminish what this book is saying for me. Maybe it makes it more interesting for you, but for me it's like this is not how it's. But it it depends on how you deal with the end of the book as to whether you actually feel that there is an invasion occurring. And and that's fine, but, I mean, that's still like you still need, in inverted commas, that the tower to be an artefact that's hung around since the 1950s. Like it's one of these extra artifacts that we've seen. We're not we're not doubting the essay and the critical. Mm-hmm. We're not doubting those extra things aren't real that someone didn't write them and they aren't out there in the world. We're not doubting that. To, to doubt the tower, which seems central to how this particular conspiracy theory has built itself, for me, it would undermine what the book is doing. So for me, that was the one weakness of it is that I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I I think it it doesn't. It doesn't pull into the book. Everything else is pulling into the core of this book and building on it. And this kind of says, oh, well, it's all made up. It's like that's less interesting to me as a reader. But it's not all made up to the characters, to Frank. It's not made up. I know. So to them that is the truth, one way or the other, even if it it is. is. And just like we see now, even if it was, you know, that John Sylvester never existed, this book is a fake that was written 20 years, 30 years ago, they would then rework that into their own uh, belief systems because they are are sold on the super soldier program, sold on all the other conspiracies. I mean, if anything, the way these sorts of conspiracy theories seem to work is, if anything, it would be, you know, some subset of this group would be going, you know what, actually, I reckon the tower wasn't written by John Sylvester. I reckon John Sylvester didn't actually exist. I reckon it was a plant. Not that the book itself has been. Yeah, fair enough. You know what I mean? Like it, it that thing, it just, it's making me kind well, of look, think about the book in, in a way that I don't feel the, the book is intending me to. But that aside, you know, I'm I'm willing to accept that, the Tower is a real real book that was published in the 50s and it was obscure and sunk without a trace and so on. And then and that becomes sort of the, the core of, you know, where, where this has come from. And it works because I'm not doubting anything else. Alan does a really good job of when her characters are talking or writing about um, artefacts that they've drawn into their worldview, those things are real. Like those things are actually real. The, the music they're talking about, the, the films, the other books they reference, they're all real things. To say the tower actually 
I, you know what I mean? It's not. Yeah, yeah. I, and we've spent all the books speaking, all this podcast speaking about that because, and 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 I, I, that wasn't my intent because there's so much <laughs> other stuff. I mean, this is yeah. this is half the length of the Chuck Wendig, mm-hmm. and yet in a way it packs. Well, no, it couldn't pack more because the Chuck Wendig packs a lot. But just just in terms of the density here, I'm, I'm actually struggling to express myself about how much I enjoyed and loved aspect of this novel because yeah. of the way it talks about misinformation but also talks about art mm-hmm. and the nature of art and how it affects us yeah. and also its unreliability but the, also the artist and the the issues with the people who make art and, in, you know. The, the, and, and the, and and the all, pedestals we put them on. And, and the pedestals we put them on and all that comes together as well and it shouldn't. Because essentially, it's a novel about uh, the, the private investigator looking for a missing uh, missing person. Yeah. And well, that's like the armature. The armature. <laughs> that's like the armature <laughs> that the actual book strings itself along. One of the things I I love about it, and I think it is it is deliberate, and this is one of the things the book makes you think about is you know. The book is about, you know, essentially these conspiracy theorists who believe there is some kind of alien presence, life form on the planet already here, already affecting us, already changing how we think, changing how our minds work, um, you know, invading us from within, so to speak. Um, and you can make all sorts of parallel. This was a pandemic book. She wrote this during COVID and had to change it as the pandemic progressed so it could still be real world. Like the the pandemic is mentioned in here. Not that there's COVID conspiracy theories, but it is, you know, it's part of the architecture of the book because it's it's set now. And so you can map these conspiracy theories to, to actual conspiracy theories we have in the world. And I don't know whether there's an actual conspiracy theory out there that thinks lichen is an alien life form that is poisoning us. But we certainly have a lot of realities where certain things are poisons, right, and are changing us. And we have actual things where certain things are poisons and are changing us, like microplastics, like PFAS, like all of this stuff. Um, so it was really interesting to map th- this stuff um, to the world. But what is fascinating is because th- what this book is doing is presenting the reader, presenting the reader with a bunch of things, right? You have a, a, a traditional-esque narrative, um, well, it also does the psycho thing. The book starts with Frank, Frank's point of view. You get very attached to Frank. Frank disappears. It's like, ah, yeah. oh, where, where do I put this attachment? I've built up all this attachment. I really like Frank. He's great. Oh, my God, he's gone. Where, what, what, what do I do with this basket of attachment I've, I've built up? Oh, we'll give it to Norman Bates. He seems nice. <laughs> and that's, the, you know, like the Wendig conquest does this thing it it starts you off with a character who you quite like you're quite attached to you built this nice emotional investment in and god I hate that I, I I use capitalist language as metaphor but we all do anyway and then suddenly you've got this basket of emotion and attachment and that character is fucked off and it's like ah robin here you go (laughs) and robin hasn't had to work for any of it she just gets it it's like okay robin great robin all right very clever but so it's presenting you with these fragmented narratives from different focal characters it's presenting you with artifacts whether it's the the extract or whole book of the tower that's mentioned before you come across the extract um it's essays it's the endings 
plural. <laughs> it's all just presented to the reader for us to, you know, make sense of and draw connections between, which is exactly how conspiracy theories work. Ah, uh, yes, yes. You know, it's yeah. ex- you are, and this is how books work. Everything, we talk about it all the time. What was that doing in the book? It didn't seem to relate. You know, the book could be tired if you exercised a serial killer because he didn't seem to need to be that. We. This is how books work. Everything in a book, and we, we are... We have been hyper-trained for this as writers and and readers to some extent that you only put in a book what absolutely needs to be there. Your character must be doing three things at once. It has to have different purposes. Don't write a scene unless that scene is doing at least two different things. Like everything needs to be there, right? So books have and narratives have trained us to go everything is everything is linked, everything is important. If this character's here and they wander off, why? Why were they even in the book? Why can't they just be there? And this is how our, our contemporary narratives work and we see it as a failure of a narrative if there's just a side character who wanders in, does nothing much, wanders out again. It's like they don't need to be there. Get rid of them. Uh, have, aren't you just undermining my whole thing that I said about Chuck Wending? I mean, you're right. I'm not disagreeing <laughs> with you. Well, I mean, what, what's wrong with the serial killer in, in, in Book of Accidents? L- right. Let him be. Let him let be. Let him be. And what Conquest does is very, you know, subtly but explicitly remind us that this is how contemporary narratives work. We are hypersensitive as readers to things which, why did that need to be there? Yeah. Yeah, because it's not connected to the narrative. If it's not explicitly part of the actual narrative plot, as opposed to maybe adding texture, maybe some world building, maybe you can do that in another way. You can world build in a way that adds to your plot. This is the whole thing. And, and we are, yeah. as I said, as writers, if you if you even take a cursory look at all you know, writing advice and 10 tips and blah, 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 they're all about this hyper focus on plot and everything needs to serve the plot. And so you read the Book of Accidents and you're... But Wendig is playing in that paradigm, though. So he's he's accepted those rules. Yes. And so if I say the serial killer's not needed, I'm not necessarily... Well, or you say it, you're not necessarily, not necessarily contradicting yourself because you're saying you've taken on that those rules, yeah. those principles. You have That's to follow right. them. I'm sorry. That's right. I'm sorry. Nina Allen has gone, and she's been doing this for years now, has been saying, I'm going to push... That envelope, and, and and she's been magpie-like picking from other authors who are doing it as well, because it's not just Nina Allen, and saying, no, 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 I want to push that, and and, and it leads to what you're exactly what you're saying. Mm. But but but, but, where, but where you still get a book that has connective tissue, yeah. where you can connect it together if you want to or need to or see it as you, a, you kind like a of need to, to to be satisfied by this book you're not yeah. you, it's not just you know it's not a collection of essays it's not it, it is a book which is presenting you with this stuff and saying by well really it's a collection of essays no but like by, vir- no, no. by virtue of the fact that that all these things exist within these covers which is titled conquest it all connects it is it is telling you to find that it, it is making you a conspiracy theorist in this world because you are you are finding the connections which may or may not exist these two books really do sit on different sides of a mm. spectrum and that's what's so interesting yeah. and the wending is very expositional very leaves you you know it's it, quite a powerful it's, narrative it's, line. it's not traditional in many ways because of the what it does with its plot but it is traditional it's core genre absolutely. it is absolutely it is in its spot and it's and it's deliberate it's happy to be there it's very yeah, happy there. yeah. alan alan is not happy to go in those places <laughs> to push against those and doing it in a in an extraordinary way, and but showing that the novel, the novel as a concept, is flexible and malleable, and we and like yeah. you said, what you've just said, we don't have to necessarily follow every single rule 
things can change, but but that doesn't mean it's incoherent because you will see people will read Conquest and say it's pretentious. I'm 100% sure that will happen. But Yeah, maybe. But, but Robin, Frank, um, and Rachel are all well-fleshed-out characters. They mm-hmm. are not just... Um, they're not ciphers. Ciphers. There you go. Yeah. They're not ciphers. No. They were just there for Ellen so she can show how smart she is and experimental yeah. she is. And you know what's great, um, and I've only just kind of thought about it now as we're talking, what is awesome is your, your sympathetic characters in this book, your Franks, your Rachels, your Robins. Yeah. They are working-class characters. They have come from impoverished backgrounds. Frank and Rachel grew up on housing estates. Robin... Yeah. Um, is a, is a victim of crime in a, in, a, in a very real way and she was adopted, her mother was killed. They're the opposite to the characters who we, in this book, are kind of sit in the antagonist camp, which is your two, you know, your, your two people from the forums who, who are authors of the two essays we do get to read, who are very much academics and, you know, up there and, and, and so on. Well, one is an academic, one is... Um, they're, but they are ivory, they're the ivory exactly, tower types. Right? Um, and yet Frank, Robin, Rachel... They are super into Bach and classical music and all yeah. of this stuff and appreciate it and understand it and can articulate their appreciation and understanding, which is different to how we these these characters are often presented. It's like, oh, and, and, and yes, you know, maybe you might like the music, but you don't really appreciate it. It's like, no, they fucking understand it and appreciate it and can articulate that, despite the fact that they're not, you know, they're not trained musicologists. They're not, you know, they haven't come up through academia. The working class protagonist side is, is another element to this book, what Alan is, is, is trying to do here. Again, push against just the basic middle class paradigm that we read every single day yeah uh, and, I, I i loved it <laughs> unreservedly yeah. and i will say i was acknowledged publicly on this podcast i have had a a novel i concept and yeah. kicking around in my head for a good decade and kind of ideas of maybe how it could be written and and i don't know and it's like reading conquest it's like huh and it's not that i will i will write it like conquest but it's like it's like Huh, I can kind of see now how I might actually in detail structure. Without ever having spoken to my life to Nina Allen, but having read her blog, just like you've mm. read Chuck's, I think it's the spider's house. I know she would be so happy to hear that because that is exactly <laughs> the way she works. She is inspired by either yeah. other writers. You know, she just wrote a, be- a review about Rachel uh, Rachel Cusk uh, book. She, mm. there, there's, you know, there are these authors out there, uh, Dennis Me- Denise Mina, others who have really inspired her, uh, including her partner Chris Priest, that has influenced her work, and it's just really cool to hear that. Well, I mean, this is this is how the arts work, right? Artists, writers, musicians, whatever kind of art form you're practicing, um, you, you should be, and this is an absolute should. This is an absolute should. You should be reading, listening, watching in in the discipline you're working in, um, specifically in the genre you're working, but absolutely outside of it as well. And it's an exercise. It's kind of like it reminds me of when you do like impro, right? The, the rule of impro is always yes and, right? Someone feeds you a line, it's always yes and. And as artists, that's what we should be doing. It's like, yes, I see what you're doing and I can do this. And that's that's how influence should work. 
nothing is sui generis. Like we're all influenced by everyone else. So yeah, having read Conquest, I can kind of see now not not the exact same way that Conquest is written, but I can see how I can structure this novel that's been kicking around for more than a decade, which I'm kind of pleased about. I I probably have a, a shit ton more to say, but I think we've gone over the hour. We could say so much more about both of these books. They're both incredibly yeah. complex, really, really rich. Um, and I'm not saying the same reader won't enjoy both, but it feels like they're aimed at kind of a different readership. No, no, no. Can I, I'm going to make a final point here. I'm going to make a final point here. We, we as readers have to be open to all sorts of things, okay? We should not be snubbing out. I mean, I, I saw a thread just yesterday about – uh, one author who I won't name saying, oh, uh, I write literary uh, novels. Uh, I hate how literary novels with propulsive plots are looked down upon by critics, that they only like plotless novels. You know, that's that's what the critics like in literary circles anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, why do we keep creating these straw men? You know, stop. It just read and enjoy. And, and, you, and there's nothing wrong loving the book of accidents and actually saying to me, no, the serial killer is needed. It's... Absolutely right. And integral the fact that it's to the plot. <laughs> integral. In fact, it's 530 pages. That's what's amazing about it. And it's just a bloody rollicking ride. But then don't snub the conquest and say, well, that's, you know, it's got a plot, but it's too high. It's blah, pretentious. Blah, blah, it's pretentious <laughs> and high pollutant. Enjoy it all. Enjoy it all. Yeah, I mean, you're but still you still books. Don't you have to. No, no, but, but come but, on, you can. Be, be willing to jump and look and and, and oh be, yes, be be and open, yeah, read open. absolutely. But it doesn't mean, mean you have mean, to like no, no, everything. I don't, I don't mean you have to like everything. No, for goodness' say, sake. No, no, that's that. No, 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 no. And only write positive uh, reviews. No, I don't mean that either. But, but be open to the experience. Yeah, absolutely. Of, of different experiences. Don't just stick to one. One lane. That's all I'm saying. That's don't stay in the lane. <laughs> there don't are no lanes. Ignore it's the lane. Unmarked road. It's unmarked. But drive it's safe. It's unmarked. But drive safe. No. Other Special people are on your road. <laughs> so on that note, uh, we'll finish up uh, next episode, which will be in September. We will be talking about the Living Sea of Waking Dreams by Richard Flanagan, and a debut novel, The Saint of Bright Doors by Vadra Chandrasekhar. So um, I chose the latter, you chose the former. I did. And it was a completely arbitrary choice. I was literally in a secondhand shop and that book was on cover out display and it was a very cool cover and I picked it up and I read the blurb and the blurb was really interesting and I went, I'm going to buy this book. And I've been meaning to read Richard Flanagan. He's an Australian author, an award-winning Australian author. Uh, Book a prize winning author. Been meaning to read him for a long time. So the the, the Chandra Sekra, uh, I uh, I only became aware of because I uh, listened to Cood Street and Jonathan spoke about it uh, as one of the debuts to look out for. And mm-hmm. I always like to find out who the new the new writers are, just so just so we can find someone else that we love, so we don't read all the other authors that we love. <laughs> So, you know, that's how it is. Anyway. Uh, it is how it is. Please send feedback by commenting on the website, writerandcritic.podbean.com. Send an email to writerandcritic at gmail.com. Don't bother with X. Just don't I should bother. take that out. We might, yeah. We may never mention that again. And sponsor us on Patreon if you can. And on that note, I'll see you in September, all of you. <laughs> all of you. We'll see you all. For our hundredth and first episode, yeah, which we'll obviously celebrate. No, I think we should celebrate like a hundred and four. Just a really weird number to celebrate. 
Great. Great, great into the podcast. Bye. Bye. I followed. I have followed.